0: I've been asking a lot of women about the different kinds of work they've done in their lives.
1: Uh, Chopping cotton, picking cotton, pulling corn. Most of my job experience is call centers.
2: Mostly retail jobs. Taking care of a couple of older people that go and do their housework and stay with them as company.
3: Oh gosh, it's been mostly minimum wage jobs. Gas stations, mom and pop shops, Walmart.
1: Cleaning homes, you know, all the rich folks' homes. Crystal's House of Style, that was the hair place that
2: I worked in, San Bernardino. And then I worked at with Sweets, Elmer's Barbecue.
0: And then after my son was born, I was at a place just printing out credit reports for a home loan checking organization.
2: Working for Tyson's down in North Carolina. And oh my God, all that raw chicken. You could actually smell the kill. But you get used to it.
1: And I had been a manager for Del Taco for, like, over 10 years. Amazon. Village Liquor. Sprint. Comcast. You could
2: sell plasma, would not it? We did that for a while.
0: The thing that unites all those voices from across the country, besides all the hours of labor they've racked up, is that those women have all been on welfare at some point in their lives. And yet, one of the first things we often hear about when the word welfare comes up is...
4: We don't want to turn that net into a hammock. ...well... ...that lulls people
0: into lives of complacency
4: and dependency in the government and creates a culture of dependency.
0: ...the opposite of work.
4: The cycle of dependency that has existed for millions and millions of our fellow citizens, exiling
3: them from the world of work.
0: Welcome to the uncertain hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk, and this podcast is about making sense of making it in America. This season, we're going deep into one topic — welfare. Cash welfare for poor families. How does it work? How has it changed over time? Who does it or doesn't it help? Last episode, and I suggest you listen to them in order, it'll make more sense that way. Last episode, we got inside the heads of some of welfare's most passionate reformers, including a man known as the Magic Bureaucrat. People who helped, quote, end welfare as we know it 20 years ago, because they were so concerned that not enough welfare recipients were working. On this episode, we have a very different set of perspectives. We go from the reformers to the reformed upon, and hear the story of how welfare has changed over the years through the eyes of two women who were on welfare for some part of their lives. These women encountered welfare at a few different crucial moments in history, moments when we as a society were rethinking and then rethinking again who deserved help and what kind of help they deserved. So here's the first person I want to introduce you to.
1: My name is Ruby Duncan.
0: And how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, that's no
1: problem. I tell that all the time. I'm 83 at the moment.
0: Ruby has a big smile and looks you straight in the eye when she talks to you, like she wants to make sure you understand exactly what she thinks before she moves on. She gets around mostly in a wheelchair now, but she's spent most of her life on her feet. Picking cotton, cleaning houses. She's been a hotel maid, a barmaid. Back in the late 60s, she worked at the Sahara Casino in Las Vegas, in one of the kitchens there, prepping food for thousands of people a day.
1: 1,200 salads made in a hurry, 160 gallons of coffee. So I was pretty swift. I did a great job. <laughs>
0: One morning, Ruby was in the middle of her regular routine, racing back and forth from the pantry to her station in the kitchen, balancing a platter loaded with food. When? As I was coming back, I slipped. On some cooking oil that had spilled. She fell hard. And I
1: didn't know at the moment what had really happened. They helped me up.
0: It turned out she'd done severe damage to her spine she was in and out of the hospital for more than a year.
1: Two knee replacements, a hip replacement, four back surgeries. I really messed myself up.
0: The injuries made it impossible to be on her feet all day, working a kitchen job, or pretty much any other job she could find at the time, as a woman who'd never finished high school. While her union and her employer battled it out over whether to pay her disability, she tried to figure out how, with no current income, to support her seven kids on her own. Her children's fathers were out of the picture.
1: So therefore I've become a, a, welfare, a welfare you know, recipient.
0: You can still hear in her voice how uncomfortable she felt about this new label, after having worked since she was eight years old. But... She would be a welfare recipient on and off for years as her kids grew up, working a little, then going back on welfare when the pain from her injury would get too bad. And she hated it.
1: I hated welfare, to be fair with you. I really hated it. You're talked down to, and you really are completely always stressed out.
0: And Ruby's stress and her hatred of the system only increased when she learned something one day as she was doing her grocery shopping.
1: What happened was on the first of the month, the stores are crowded.
0: The first of the month being the day when families usually got their welfare checks.
1: And you can tell who the welfare recipients were because the carts begin to start filling up as much as possible. And so women began to talk to each other. And we would talk about, you know, as we conversating, we would say, well, how much do you get? And how large are your family?
0: Turns out the white women she talked to were getting more welfare benefits.
1: Than the Black welfare mothers.
0: I'll get back to Ruby's story soon. But let me just step back for a moment to put it in some context. Because the thing you need to know about Ruby's discovery is that it was not unique. It wasn't just a fluke about the women she talked to in that grocery store in Las Vegas. For many decades, dating back to its inception in the 1930s, discrimination in the welfare system was a defining fact of the welfare system. It was written into guidelines at various welfare offices across the country, including the one where a woman named Nancy Humphreys worked in Los Angeles. She later became a professor of social work, but back in the 1960s,
4: I worked uh, as an intake worker for the first year of my employment.
0: And Nancy says some of the forms she had to fill out when she signed families up for welfare were based on these discriminatory rules.
4: I saw them. I wrote them out. I complained about doing it. I said, this isn't right. And they said, those are the rules. You looked on a chart, and if a mother was uh, applying for herself and three children, there was a white column and a black column. It was just the way the rules were set up. There was this, this assumption that black families Families could get along with less, and white families needed a little more.
3: You know, it's interesting. There was really only a tiny trickle of African Americans on on the rolls
0: uh, for a long time. Kathy Eden is a professor of sociology at Johns Hopkins. She's been studying the welfare system for most of her career, and she says up through the end of the '60s, states didn't just give black families fewer benefits than white families. They also made it harder for them to get welfare benefits in the first place.
3: States had clever ways of keeping blacks off the rolls. Part of it was
4: the kinds of things that you had to talk about.
0: Here's Nancy Humphreys again, who worked in the LA welfare office. She says they were told to ask invasive questions that discouraged women from applying for welfare.
4: You had to ask people about how often they had sex.
0: You would ask that?
4: Yes, you were supposed to find out how often they had had sex and over what period of time.
0: Another tactic to keep black families off the rolls, sociologist Kathy Eden says, was something called the good housekeeping test. In which caseworkers
3: would literally don white gloves and come into your dwelling and you know, run their their fingertips across uh, the top of your fireplace mantle or your windowsill. And they would look at their fingers and see if they could see any dust and... And if they did, they could exclude you. It was essentially a completely discretionary system where you could exclude someone uh, for any reason, but you could sort of couch it
0: under the good housekeeping test. And then there were the midnight raids. This was in the days when only single mothers were eligible for welfare. Two parent families didn't qualify, even if the father was unemployed or earning so little that the family was still poor. And to make sure a mother was really single, a squad of welfare workers would sometimes make surprise visits to recipients' houses.
4: After midnight, um, you know, sometimes 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning.
0: Nancy Humphreys, the welfare worker, had colleagues — it was usually the men in the office — who did these midnight raids.
4: You pounded on the door and you couldn't be denied entry. I mean, they would break the door down if necessary to get into the house.
0: If a man was found in the house, or just a man's belt, or razor, or a large-sized shoe, the family could be kicked off welfare.
4: And often there were efforts to prosecute them for fraud, um, of having received benefits illegally.
0: All these rules, intermittently and subjectively enforced, had the effect of making the welfare system, as one civil rights leader at the time put it, a sieve with holes in it just big enough for the majority of Black families to fall through. Which brings us back to Ruby Duncan, the reluctant welfare recipient in Las Vegas, as she learned about the discrimination built into the welfare system.
1: I then began to hate the welfare system more. That's how I began to start organizing.
0: She saw it as an extension of the civil rights movement, the welfare rights movement.
1: Welfare rights was organizing women and making sure that All the different women throughout the the community did not let the Welfare Department impose upon them.
0: Ruby and a handful of her friends started knocking on doors, finding other women on welfare.
1: We become stronger and stronger, women by the hundreds.
0: They worked with lawyers to file lawsuits against the welfare department, demanding equal rights and equal treatment for Black recipients, and more job training for all recipients, so they could find higher-paying jobs. Or, in Ruby's case, a job that didn't require her to be on her feet all day. But there was resistance.
1: Then we all got together. I say we, I don't like saying I. Although I was the one that said, well, let's, let's march on them.
0: And they stormed the welfare department.
1: Stay here, let this man know that you don't like what do. happened.
2: Ah!
0: At the same time, similar welfare rights efforts in the street and in the courts were happening all over the country. This is a recording of a welfare rights gathering in Newark, New Jersey in 1967. Ah! And over the next few years, these organizing efforts worked. The white glove tests, the midnight raids, the the man-in-the-house rules were all thrown out or deemed unconstitutional. And in that time, something interesting happens. The number of people on cash welfare nearly triples. So you see this sort of ballooning of welfare. Here's sociologist Kathy Eden
3: again. In part because this is a time in which people who are eligible actually claim their entitlement to cash aid. They were always out there, um, but they were excluded.
0: I've been thinking about that word Kathy Eden just said, entitlement, a lot lately. Their entitlement to cash aid. It's such an interesting and slippery word in the history of welfare. Today, the word entitlement has become synonymous with a sense of unearned privilege or selfishness. But entitlement also has this older, drier legal definition. A government program with benefits that aren't subject to budgetary discretion, that are entitled, written into law. And therefore, a government benefit that people who are eligible under that law have a claim to. In the late 60s and 70s, welfare rights activists like Ruby Duncan fought to gain access to that entitlement as a civil right, and the welfare roles grew. And as they grew and had a much more diverse set of recipients, the whole welfare system got a lot more scrutiny.
4: We don't want to turn that net into a hammock. We've taught people that you get paid off if you are helpless. Today we are ending welfare as we know it. But I hope this day will be remembered not for what it ended, but for what it began.
0: So Ruby Duncan's story helps us understand this key moment in the history of welfare in the late 60s and early 70s, when it expanded to reach more people and a more diverse group of people. Now we meet a woman who lived through the next defining moment in how our country approached cash aid to poor families, when the pendulum swings back and welfare starts to retract again. I'm talking about the sweeping welfare reforms passed into law in 1996, And in many ways, these reforms were a result of that early expansion of welfare, which ultimately made the program more costly and less popular to taxpayers. It started to get lots of scrutiny, scrutiny that culminated in a set of reforms defined by the slogan, welfare to work. It got a lot of headlines back in the mid-90s. From Los Angeles, this is Marketplace including here at Marketplace, the radio show that I work for.
4: President Clinton today praised welfare reform efforts already underway in various states and said there's evidence the strong economy is helping to move people off public assistance and into jobs.
0: In 1997, the year after welfare reform passed, Marketplace did a series where we followed a woman as she transitioned from the old kind of welfare, where if you met certain income requirements, you were automatically entitled to assistance, to this new kind of welfare, a program of time limits and work requirements. The woman Marketplace followed — this was long before my time, by the way — was named Josephine Moore. Josephine Moore, a single mother of six who's been on and off welfare for more than a decade. Josephine, Joe for short, lived in the tiny coal-mining town of Kermit, West Virginia, one of the poorest, most economically depressed parts of the country. Back then, businesses were shutting down right and left. Here's Joe giving a tour of Kermit in 1997.
2: This used to be an IGA and a Piggly Wiggly's Groceries, but it went out of business. This used to be a shoe store. It went out of business about six months ago.
0: All these shuttered businesses made Joe worried about how she was going to navigate the new welfare system with its time limits and work requirements.
2: Everybody that's on welfare in the United States, I don't know how they're going to get everybody a job. I just don't know how. I don't think they can. You can't just cut it off and say sink or
0: swim, because
2: we're talking about people.
0: So 20 years later, we wanted to know, did Joe sink or did she swim? Hello? Hello? Hi, is this Joe's house? Hi, hello. And so, to find out, we tracked Joe down actually up a very steep, muddy driveway. That's why I'm panting to a trailer surrounded by an enormous pile of aluminum cans. We wanted to check back in with her. Come
2: on in, don't thank you, but stop. It's so nice to meet you too, honey. Today,
0: Joe's living in that same West Virginia town, Kermit. That Piggly Wiggly and that shoe store that went out of business 20 years ago? Since then, nothing ever took their place. In fact, the buildings they were in? They've been demolished. So it's just gone. It's not even an empty building. It's just gone.
2: It's gone. Yeah, they just tore it down because people was vandalizing it. And, stuff
0: and still like more stores have closed. The hardware store, the clothing store, five local coal mines.
2: Well, one good thing, it's closed. All the bars is finally out of Kermit.
0: Today, Joe's 59. She's got steel gray hair in a buzz cut, wireframe glasses. She lives on a piece of mountain her family has owned for generations. Her two-bedroom trailer is decorated with trinkets of ships and wizards, and there are lots of mattresses stashed here and there. I've got five,
2: because you never know when somebody's going to show up. I don't care if I have to stack you up like cordwood. If you need me, I'm here.
0: When I visited this winter, Joe's oldest daughter, Estella, was living there. And her son Johnny, her daughter Carolina, and a bunch of her grandkids had come to visit for a while.
2: That's my granddaughter Tiffany. Wave. And then that's little Latham. Latham and that's my Amber. My kids all has always been real good about showing up and bringing me cakes and cookies that I ain't supposed to have.
0: Joe's family is incredibly close. Her ex-husband went to jail when the kids were young, so Joe is both matriarch and patriarch. In fact, her kids don't really call her mom. They call her... Jim Bob, I had a breakdown, and Jim Bob took care of me during this breakdown. And what? Which led to a little confusion when I first met them. Wait, are you calling your mom no, no, Jim? Jim, my mom is Jim Bob. <laughs> oh,
2: I never even. Like, well, you just get confused
0: about. I was like, wait, who's Jim Bob? No, that's,
1: that's that's her weird. dad' name for us, cause she's been her dad and our mom.
0: The
2: story goes when one of Joe's kids was young. I guess some, somebody may have asked him what his daddy's name was, and he just said Jim Bob. And then when everybody started, all of them started calling me Jim Bob, and that's been my nickname. So.
0: <laughs> after Joe, Jim Bob, and her kids explained to me their complicated family tree, we started getting into the question I'd come to ask. How had her family fared after welfare reform? Did they sink or did they swim? The short answer, if you looked at Joe's life like a welfare policy researcher might, as a set of data points, moments on welfare, and moments off, it'd look like this. Before welfare reform, she had lots of moments on welfare. When her husband lost his job at the coal mine, he had a drinking problem, and she was raising small kids.
2: I had to go on welfare because I had to feed Johnny and Estella.
0: When her husband went to prison and she couldn't find enough work cleaning houses. I had a
2: few jobs here and there, and then I got back on welfare.
0: But then, soon after the welfare reforms of 1996, once all the work requirements and personal responsibility contracts and time limits set in.
2: After that, I wasn't on it. I never went back to welfare.
0: And that has indeed been one of the big findings of poverty researchers and policymakers. Since welfare reform, the welfare rolls have dropped by a lot. And a lot of single mothers, including Joe, found jobs. David Elwood, one of President Clinton's advisors during welfare reform, said these results exceeded even his expectations. People started working
4: more. Huge increase in the number of lone parents working. Uh, wow, that's really uh, amazing. The, the program really is working. Many, many mothers left welfare.
0: That's Ron Haskins, a congressional staffer on the Republican side during welfare reform. He says in the years right after the bill was passed, this was the bipartisan conclusion. Studies followed single moms in the wake of welfare reform and found that, roughly
4: speaking, about 60% of the mothers who left welfare got jobs, and they appeared to be better off.
0: But in the time I spent with Joe and her family at her home in West Virginia, they explained to me it's a little more complicated than that. First off, Joe had worked on and off before welfare reform. Between raising her kids and going to school, she has an associate's degree in secretarial science, she'd do odd jobs, clean houses, take care of elderly people.
2: Sometimes I'd have enough work where I didn't need the welfare. And if I didn't need
0: it, I didn't want it because that's just for when you need it. But after welfare reform, even if there were no jobs you could get, you still had to be involved in some sort of work activity for 20 hours a week to qualify for cash assistance.
2: They would uh, give us a list of places we could go. It's just one more thing we had
0: to do. She volunteered as a janitor at a local school, helping fold clothes at a Christian charity. This was all a little frustrating to Joe because it meant she didn't have much time to look for work that actually paid.
2: If the daytime hours is stuck up with you doing the volunteer stuff, when are you going to go find jobs though?
0: About a year after welfare reform kicked in, Joe did get a full-time paying job. Not through any government-sponsored welfare-to-work program, but because her sister got sick. Cancer. Jo moved her family down to North Carolina, where her sister lived, to take care of her for a while. The economy was doing much better in North Carolina. And so she found a job at a Tyson chicken factory, cleaning a chicken wings assembly line. She loved it.
2: I was on maintenance. I cleaned the lines, uh, made Help make the chemicals.
0: Joe's daughter Carolina had just graduated high school and she got a job at the chicken factory, too. And Joe's son, Ransom, got a job there, too. It was hard work that could be dangerous. Carolina lost a thumb on the assembly line in an accident. But Carolina told me just that feeling of supporting herself on a paycheck, not a welfare check. It was worth the thumb. It was worth it
2: because you was working and you was earning your money. And, and it, felt, it felt good to getting that paycheck and being able to cash it and going out and spending your money yes. and knowing you had it. Doing that a lot. That's true. You, you had it and it was yours. It felt good.
0: And this was all part of the idea behind welfare reform. To use, in the language of public policy, carrots and sticks to get welfare recipients into jobs the carrots of earning your own paycheck and the satisfaction in that, and the sticks of time limits and work requirements. And I wondered if this had made a difference for Joe and her family. When welfare changed, when welfare reform changed, do you think it pushed you to get a job sooner than you would have if it had been the same where you didn't need to be working?
2: No, I don't think so, because I had always been looking for work and, and trying to get out of it, to be honest.
0: To Joe's mind, it wasn't about the work requirements or the work ethics that welfare reform was designed to encourage. She says she already wanted to work. As she sees it, there were three main reasons why she never got back on welfare after welfare reform, and they didn't have much to do with welfare reform itself. First, she moved to North Carolina, where the economy was better and jobs were easier to find. And that gave her family enough money that, for the first time, they could afford a car, which is reason number two Joe thinks she stayed off welfare. When they moved back to West Virginia a few years later, she could actually get to the parts of the state where there were jobs. From where Joe lives in Kermit, the closest town with more than just a few businesses is about a 30-minute drive. There's no public transit. And without a car, that's eight hours walking. Eight hours? Yes. And I know this because I've done it. You would walk eight hours? Yes. In West Virginia and a lot of rural places with bad economies, that's the double bind that someone like Joe is in. You need a car to get a job.
2: Because one of the first things they ask is, do you have reliable transportation? And you have to say, no. Well, how are you going to get here? And if you say, well, I'll walk if I have to, they look at you like, yeah, I bet.
0: But you can't get a car because you don't have enough money because you can't get a job. It's a catch-22.
2: It's like a dog chasing itself. It don't matter what you do, you ain't going to catch it.
0: Once Joe and her family finally did get a car in the late 90s, Joe and her daughters did catch that dog by the tail. They held down a series of jobs, mostly customer service call centers for credit cards, Sprint, Boost Mobile. They were usually at least a two-hour commute away, but they were jobs. And Joe never did go back on cash welfare neither did any of her kids. Not because they haven't hit hard times since then. Few of their jobs have been above minimum wage, meaning they're still often hovering around the poverty line. And the jobs they have had come and go. Joe and her kids have been laid off more times than they can count. They have still gotten food stamps on and off over the years. But as Joe's middle daughter Carolina explains, the current cash welfare system... Man, the paperwork that's involved with that stuff is just So much of a hassle, I bother with it. And that is the third reason Joe and her family say they never went back to welfare after it changed in the 90s. It became too much of a hassle. So instead of dealing with all the work requirements and forms that have to be signed to get cash assistance, Joe and her daughters have found other ways of making ends meet when jobs don't pay enough. Like, remember those aluminum cans scattered across the yard in front of Joe's house? She and her kids have been collecting them for the last two years.
2: Springtime them's gonna be loaded up and that will probably be enough money to pay the bills a couple of months. And for other things that may come up, because they sell pretty good.
0: Yeah, like how much will you get for
2: that? Um uh, well I ain't sure, but I'm I'm thinking there's probably six, seven hundred dollars worth of cans out there.
0: Joe used to collect the cans in big garbage containers, but somebody come up here and stole my container. So now, to make the cans harder to steal, she just keeps them scattered across her yard. Put them
2: on the ground. If they get them by a guy, they'll have to work for it. Yeah <laughs> I, mean, I don't like it. It looks awful. I know it looks horrible, but I ain't going I ain't going do all the work and let somebody just go here and pack it off.
0: So collecting cans, that's one kind of homemade safety net that's taken the place of cash welfare. There's another that's even more lucrative they
1: Stick a needle your arm, which I have a scar, like, right here from where they used to
0: do it. Estella, Joe's oldest daughter, rolls up her sleeve to show me an indentation on her inner arm, right along her elbow crease. It's the mark of one of her cash-making strategies over the years, selling her blood plasma. And it's not just Estella that does it. Her mom, Joe, rolls up her sleeve, too. She's got a scar from doing it. I don't think you see it. There. And her sister, Carolina. Did you do it, too? yeah. Yeah, there's a scar right there. Estella first heard about selling plasma from one of her customers when she was working as a waitress, making minimum wage, which was just too much to qualify for cash assistance, but not enough to really get by. She says the procedure's pretty simple.
1: You would sit there with your arm like this, and they would pump your blood out, and it would separate the blood from the plasma, and the plasma would go into this bottle, and then they'd pump your blood back into you, and it'd take about an hour and a half and then they would give you 20 for your first visit for the week and then 30 for your second visit for the week, and then you could do it weekly.
0: That's more than $16 an hour for selling your plasma, more than twice what Estella was making at her waitressing job. And way less paperwork than welfare.
2: How we was working, we just needed the extra money for gas or... A box of diapers. I used to do it two once a week.
0: And in fact, in the 20 years since welfare reform, as the number of poor families receiving cash assistance has dropped, the U.S. has become known as the OPEC of plasma. The rates of people selling their plasma has gone up by more than 50% in the last decade. So that's the more complete answer to how Joe and her family are doing in a world after welfare reform. As for that question that Joe asked herself in 1997, Would her family and families like hers sink or swim? Well, in Joe's case at least, they've kind of just been treading water.
2: Yeah, I'm poor. Always been poor. Poor.
0: Poor Poor just trying to make it. And that's not what the great hope of welfare reform was. David Elwood, that Clinton welfare reform advisor, says the hope was that pushing welfare recipients off welfare and into jobs would just be the first step.
4: That by getting people into the labor market, uh, we would be getting them onto the first rung of a ladder. And that would ana- then they would be able to go to the second rung, the third rung, the fourth rung. And the truth is, it didn't start most people on this upward mobility.
0: As labor markets change and wages stagnate, families like Joe's are just staying on that first rung of the ladder. And then there's this whole other group of families today. A group of people who seem to be falling off the ladder entirely. That's next time on the Uncertain Hour. We hear from families who, in the wake of the welfare to work movement, are today disconnected from welfare and work, often living on less than $2 a day.
1: Bills need to be paid, uh, household items, we need hygiene items, household items, so hopefully somebody hire me real soon.
0: And so how, how do you make ends meet right now? How do you? Um, right now is kind of iffy. Plus, with so many fewer families on welfare, what are states doing with billions of welfare dollars? Some pretty crazy things. Here's a clue.
1: All right, so we're going to talk about love styles.
0: Thanks for listening to The Uncertain Hour from Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk. I'm Chrissy Clark. The Uncertain Hour happens because of producer Caitlin Esch, associate producer Gina Delvac, senior editor Nancy Fargali, engineer Ben Talladay, Mark Miller is the managing editor, and Deborah Clark is the executive producer and vice president of Marketplace. Special thanks this week to Luke Schaefer, Larry Katz, Casey Morell, Linda Gordon, Eve Epstein, Susan Leffler, and Jocelyn Tillman-Todd. Marketplace's wealth and poverty coverage is supported by the Ford Foundation. There will be more of The Uncertain Hour in two weeks. And thank you for all the amazing reviews you've put in iTunes. They really help us continue the work that we're doing. If you like what you heard and haven't reviewed us yet, please do. This is APM.